Hey, listeners, I wanted to take a moment and acknowledge the horrible situation in Ukraine. Our thoughts and prayers go out to all those affected in the region and their families. We at Zendesk are partnering with the International Rescue Committee and World Central Kitchen to give over $200,000 to everyone affected in the region. Welcome to Zendesk for Startups Founder Podcast, where we interview top founders and ask them all things customer, growth, retention, expansion. Our goal is to get find out exactly what they did so you can apply those same principles to your seed and Series A company. I'm your host, Adam O'Donnell, former founder in Silicon Valley VC, currently work at Zendesk for Startups, managing their VC and startup partnerships here in Silicon Valley. On this episode, I speak to Noah Glass, co-founder and CEO of Olo. They're one of the largest digital ordering platforms in the world. Noah shares a cool story about an inspiration he got from looking at cars pass by him on the toll road using EasyPass. They took that and applied that in person to the restaurant experience, saying if you're in line for a restaurant, say at a Noodles & Co. or a Five Guys, and you see someone pass by you in line, you're going to ask, how did this happen? Noah and his team used that mindset of skipping the line to create an in-person viral loop that got people in line to want to download the app, be able to get up to the front of the line faster. He also shares a lot of other insights about how they focus on early adopters. Without further ado, here we go. The last time I talked to you, Olo was only at about 150,000 MRR. So I know you've grown quite a bit. When did you actually found Olo? In 2005. And that in and of itself was a couple of years after I started thinking about Olo. We are now 16 and a half years into the Olo journey. And I, I honestly feel like we're like still so early and just getting started. And I feel that energy from our team. You know, it's still so early. It's still day one sort of energy in the company. Whoever you're working with, you want to make sure you're willing to do it for at least 10 years and a lot of times 20, 30 years. So I, I love that. What was the original product of Bolo? I'm happy to say is what we're still working on today, which is really enabling restaurants to meet the needs of on-demand consumers. And what that, that meant then and what it means now is slightly different. But at the time, it was really about imagining a world where consumers were going to be walking around with smartphones in their pockets. And I had this insight sort of in a weird way. I, I came to New York City in 2003 carrying a Palm Pilot personal digital assistant, which was a very strange thing to have at the time, especially for a 22-year-old. But for me, it was just sort of a fun way of organizing things and getting information about the world around me. But I, I came to believe that we were all going to be carrying around devices like this and that once we all had them, they would be commerce devices. And I really, having grown up working in the restaurant industry, thought about what if I could use this device to order and pay at a coffee shop, at a restaurant, have them prepare the order as I traveled from where I was when I ordered to, to there and then collect the order without having to wait behind other customers or wait for them to prepare the order. So that was the original idea, but launched at a time in 2005 when it was under 5% of the population that was carrying a smartphone, what we would now call a smartphone. And of course, they weren't very smart at that time. So it was really before high-speed mobile web apps, all that experience. So the initial product was around text messaging. It was kind of helping people to see how you could use a phone to trigger an order, use it like a remote control for buying something. But it was all driven by this very rudimentary, very clunky uh, text message ordering system where you had to go online, create an account, link your phone through a double opt-in text message, link a credit card to that account, and then create your favorite orders. And then we would text you a list of those favorite orders from the restaurants that had signed up and you could respond to that with the code 
that correspond to the order you wanted to place. We did some kind of cool things. We let you do a future order. You could indicate what time you wanted to collect it. You could indicate if you want it delivered by storing delivery addresses all over text message uh, and SMS. Um, but that was that was the original product, and it was a clunky experience to get through. But the people that used it were really passionate about it and said, you know, this is actually translating to saved time in my daily commute or in my lunch hour, and I value that. And that gave us the inspiration to to keep going. That is really neat, man. How big are you now? Just to give the, the perspective of growth. We are now serving 500 enterprise restaurant brands. And in total, our restaurant network, we are exclusive with all those brands. So all of their restaurant locations are part of the Olo platform. Now 76,000 total locations across the US. Um, if you look at uh, our, our IPO, which we did in, in March of this year, we were coming off of a year last year where um, we were at just under $100 million in revenue uh, in 2020, heading into 2021. Um, and we haven't yet announced our, our 2021 numbers, so I can't share those yet. Um, but it was a big, a big growth year throughout 2020 as COVID hit in uh, the early parts of, uh, of the year. And it led to so many restaurants saying, this is the only way to order from me now because my dining room is closed. And so many consumers finding their way to on-demand commerce, as we now refer to it, because that was maybe the only way to order. Maybe it made them feel safer to order in that way, even when they had alternatives. And then realizing this is just a fundamentally more convenient way of getting food from a restaurant when I'm going to eat that food at home, or if I'm going to eat that food at work, or if I'm going to eat that food in my car. And now for the first time, a really interesting thing happened, which is we're starting to see consumers using our platform and restaurants enabling consumers to use the platform inside of restaurants. So we always thought about our opportunity being off-premise consumption of restaurant food. Now it's really every order, whether it's off-premise consumption or on-premise consumption. And so our, our, our ambitions have increased and the opportunity has increased um, really as a result of the familiarity that consumers now have and restaurants saying, I already have this platform in place. I want to use it to level up the experience for consumers across every ordering channel. That is a very neat expansion opportunity. <laughs> I can I can only imagine if like you first started and you were only doing say 10% of orders, obviously COVID already helps that just because of the the online nature of those orders. But now it's like, even as COVID goes away, we're, we're now just expanding into all parts of the business. If you had to go back to one of the early days before you started having this exponential growth, what was one of the most impactful tactics or strategies that led to a significant jump? Thought a lot in the early days about early adopters with from within the restaurant brands that were out there. And we knew that it wasn't going to be every restaurant brand that adopted digital ordering uh, you know, in the early days. So we thought about, you know, where could this have the greatest utility for consumers? Where could it have the greatest utility for the restaurant based on its service model? And we luckily landed on the fast casual segment. This was a segment that was really getting its start in the, the mid 2000s, right when we were getting our start. And it was a segment that really specialized in personalized, customized orders. So if you think about brands like Five Guys, brands like Sweetgreen, brands like Noodles and Company, Shake Shack. These became early Olo customers. And the idea was in that fast casual experience, you usually have long lines because they're popular restaurants. 
And then you also, because of the highly customized nature of the offering, you place the order, they're assembling it right in front of you. And if it's a burger, it's gonna take say seven minutes to prepare. And so that double weight of a long wait in line and then a wait for the order to be prepared really created a lot of utility for our platform. You know, if you could skip the line, which became our registered trademark and not have to wait behind other customers and not have to wait for them to prepare the order, but you could order ahead and say, I wanna collect the order at one o'clock on Friday and then have Olo hold that order, fire it into the kitchen at 12.53 on Friday. So that seven minutes could elapse. And then you walked in and could pick up a fresh and ready burger. That was a great consumer experience. And for the operator, it helped to level the playing field. They became as convenient or more convenient than fast food where it wasn't a personalized experience. And so now they're winning on personalization and convenience. And that really set off a chain reaction where other segments of the industry saw the, the wins that fast casual restaurants were having. And then we saw casual dining and then we saw family dining and then coffee and snack. And then most recently, as the late adopters, we've seen the fast food QSR segment saying, we've got to do this too. We also have to fight for the kind of stomach share, wallet share of that on-demand consumer because everybody else is. And we are now not convenient by comparison because 180 seconds in a drive-through line is slow versus food on demand. First thing you said is I landed on fast casual so I'm assuming you looked at a bunch of different segments. Can you tell us about the way you made that decision from, hey, let's not just take every restaurant. We want to take only this small segment and just like win that. And it was looking at the different models of the consumer journey and thinking about models where you were having the order and go down the line and then pay last versus the order first kind of setup. And thinking about how the store layouts were different and how those would set up for pickup lines in the restaurants. What was nice about thinking about a model like Five Guys, for those who are familiar with it, is instead of walking up to somebody and walking down the line and then paying the cashier at the end of the experience and getting called up to pick up the order, you could just beeline right into the cashier. And it was a very differentiated experience. And Something about that really resonated with us. I think it was watching the adoption of Easy Pass on toll roads and seeing if you make something that is a demonstrably different and better experience, other customers will watch somebody doing that. And there will be this demonstration effect where they'll say, well, how is that guy skipping the line? I want to do that too. There's this, uh, this German word of schadenfreude, which is, I think loosely translates the joy of others' misfortune. It's kind of the opposite of experience we were creating where, you know, skipping the line felt really cool. And others were watching that and saying, I want to do that too. And then they would learn about digital ordering and they would maybe go to the website next time or download the app once mobile apps were a thing. And that was just a really powerful way of capitalizing on the experience status quo of a long wait in line, a long wait for the food. And here my 30 minute lunch break is getting chewed up mainly by waiting. And I'm not actually enjoying the food versus that experience of I walk right in, I get my order, and then I have all that time back for myself. And I think a lot of people saw that, jumped on it, and it just sort of fed on itself from there. 
Oh yeah, I, I, it definitely makes complete sense now. And I, I'm trying. What I'm trying to do is for those founders right now who are pre-seed, seed, Series A, who are like, how do we get to that next growth level? I'm sure that sometimes you feel frustrated because you're like, oh, of course, you know, Noah thought about that, and then it worked out. It's, it's fun to pull apart the framework because I think you were doing a lot of things that just led to that. One of the things I remember you telling me when we first when we met in person, you got your developers to go behind the scenes in restaurants and be with the cooks and be with the team and just understand the process on like a really deep level. Is there anything else you could tell us to get to that aha moment? I talk like the fast casual choice was so obvious, but in the early days, it was a lot more of a sort of spray and pray approach. We had a lot of different restaurants, a lot of different service models um, that were using Olo. And we just looked at the data of where are we getting the most kind of uptake by consumers. And we did spend a lot of time in restaurant. We spent a lot of time thinking about how do we create a second make line for them to create these orders. Does that even make sense until we get to a certain volume or does it have to be kind of integrated into their core operations? I remember sharing the story with you. We would watch as people were having to click on an order to accept the orders in the early days before POS integration and all of that. And seeing just that there was a bit of a tech phobia from some of the restaurant workers who ha hadn't used laptops and were concerned you know, am I going to break something? Am I going to ruin this computer by, by touching it with my glove? I mean, so very basic things like that, that we had to then take into account in thinking about how do we simplify the user experience? How do we simplify that for consumers and also for operators and restaurant crews so that their life is just very simple? This is an industry that has historically very high turnover. And so you can't depend on well, someone's going to get trained on how to do this. And here's the training manual and they're going to read it and they're going to get, they're going to have mastery over time. It needs to be so dead simple on the restaurant operation side that somebody can literally walk in and be able to do it without learning that. And I think that was a big insight that we came to through observation and watching restaurant crews try to manage early versions and just fall over in complexity. You did the details right in, in a lot of ways, and I really admire that. If you had to say your superpower when you were at the Series A level, how would you describe that and then maybe compare it to now? I think at the Series A level and probably beyond that, uh, resilience has been so, so important. And just hearing no again and again and again and again from restaurants, from you know, media that was covering the story and saying, why would anybody ever do this from investors who are saying, yeah, th this just doesn't make any sense to me. Why would I use my phone? I already do use my phone. I call the restaurant. Why wouldn't I just do that? And we, we pitched hard and we pitched a lot to many different investors to make this series A happen. It was finding little green shoots and little proof points that we could point to and say, you see at this restaurant, it's really working. And here's why and having learned what we've learned, here's how we can think about where we find more restaurants that fit the same criteria where it's going to work. This all came together was pure happenstance. So we happened to get this big Good Morning America piece about our little company in September of 2006. And um, what was amazing about that beyond 6 million people seeing it on Good Morning America as the leadoff piece that morning was that some restaurateurs were in that audience in different parts of the country. We were only in New York City at the time and a restaurant group in Dallas, Texas saw what we were doing and said, this technology is really cool. Could we use it? 
And at the time we said, well, we don't have anybody to come into your restaurants and do the installation. Oh no, we'll, we'll do that. We just want to use the technology. And when we were pouring over the data to try to tell the story in the series A, I remember seeing that restaurant group and it wasn't just one restaurant. It was, I think at the time about eight restaurants and their numbers were off the charts in terms of their customers who were using it and saying, okay, there's something to this model. And it was really that they had not truly white labeled it because our product was not really set up for white label. It wasn't truly B2B at that time, but they had marketed it to their consumers as if it was their own white label solution. And that was a huge insight that ultimately led to us shifting our model to be B2B or really B2B2C and be a platform for restaurants to build their own direct channel for digital ordering. And that was really what we rallied around, what our Series A investors rallied around, and what ultimately took us from that Series A investment through to profitability as a very small and scrappy team over many years through the recession of 2008 and 2009. Um, But at the time that we got to profitability in 2012, I remember just feeling amazing about where we were. And then ultimately we realized, okay, now the market's arrived. Now iPhone is out, Android is out, Uber is in people's minds as this magical experience they have from their iPhone, from their Android device. Restaurants are calling and there's way more demand than we can possibly serve with this small scrappy team of 12. We've hit product market fit, that fabled moment that everybody talks about, and now we're ready to scale up. I think some of that mindset has really served us well. I saw in a study that came out last week of the class of 2021 IPOs, they measured how much net cash burn did it take to get to IPO. We were number one on the list for the least amount of money. It was 25 million net that we spent from founding in June, 2005 to our IPO in March of 2021. That feels incredible that we were resourceful, resilient, made it through to a successful IPO that raised over half a billion dollars on our balance sheet. And yet we're still a company that is a fast growth company by any definition, profitable. And so we control our destiny um, and now with great cash reserves to, to go and propel our growth forward and enable us to do new things. But that discipline of kind of watching the bank balance and getting to the point where we were profitable and controlled our own destiny served us really well. And I think that's a, a discipline, the, maybe the evolution of that superpower that I, I carry into our work as a public company and my work as a public company CEO and still like very mission-driven founder and feeling like it's so, still super early for us, despite being this far into the story. Thank you so much. This is going to help so many founders, a different story than just this, the typical Silicon Valley massive fundraise before going IPOs. Adam, thank you. It's always great to chat. Thanks for listening. I learned a lot. Loved how he looked at something else in a different part of his life, like sitting on a turnpike, paying for a toll watching someone fly by in an easy pass. He takes that and applies it to a different industry, making that connection. The best founders in the world, they're making connections with other areas that are working. They're applying it to their business in a unique way, but they're getting inspiration from much more than just their own industry. If you want to continue listening to this, make sure to subscribe, check out our YouTube. Next week, we have an episode with Ellie, the founder and CEO of Since360. He sold his company to Medallia and had some really cool insights on 
cold outreach. He shared that they did not know anyone in their target industry. And I've been there before. I don't know about you, but that's one of the hardest things you could possibly do. They said, okay, how can we take what we have? They had a lot of data. How can we use that to capitalize in our cold outreach? Majority of their customers came through a cold outreach approach where they shared benchmark data and other insights that showed that customer, hey, if they're leading with this kind of value it's out of the first cold email, then it's definitely worth our time. Great episode, you have to check it out. And shout out to our friends at Foreign Ventures, one of the leading B2B SaaS venture funds based out of New York, also with offices in San Francisco. They've invested in over 200 pre-seed and seed companies. One of my favorite things is that they really pride themselves on being a fractional co-founder. And I've seen this personally with the amount of introductions that they make to other people in the ecosystem, really help you get that traction and learn as fast as you can. They're super involved. They are who they say they are. Check out Foreign Ventures.